Welcome to the History of Eye Care, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the evolution of modern eye care. We'll hear the stories of today's thought leaders, innovators, and legends. By exploring the past, we can better shape the future. From anterior segment and refractive surgery to retina, plastics, and glaucoma, no part of eye care's rich history will be left in the dark. Here's your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti, an eye surgeon and curious historian who is ready to uncover the landmark moments and untold stories that have revolutionized eye care. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the History of Eye Care. Today, I'm honored to welcome Dr. Howard Gimbel, a true trailblazer in the field of ophthalmology with a career spanning over four decades, who is renowned for his pioneering work in cataract surgery. He was born into a farming family in southern Alberta, and he embraced innovation early on, becoming the first Canadian to use an ultrasonic probe for cataract removal in 1974. His work with cutting-edge techniques and intraocular lens implants transformed eye surgery in Canada and the world, leading to outpatient surgeries and a patient-centric approach that eliminated unnecessary hospitalization. Beyond surgical innovation, Dr. Gimbel's passion for teaching and research have become one of the hallmarks of his career. He's authored best-selling textbooks, contributed to medical journals, and shared his expertise globally, truly shaping the future of eye care. Well, Dr. Gimbel, thank you so much for joining us today. It's an absolute honor to have just a, a legend in ophthalmology with us. Can you tell us about how you got involved in ophthalmology? First of all, I was raised on a farm in Western Canada, about 60 miles northeast of Calgary, Alberta. And uh, we could see the Rocky Mountains, 100 miles in the distance. And it was a grain and dairy farm. So lots of physical activity. I mean, I drove trucks long before you could get a driver's license, you know, in the fields where you don't need a license. And drove tractors and and uh, front-end loaders and where you got hydraulics and you got up and down and tilt and and your brake and clutch. So uh, I tell people I earned, learned eye-hand coordination long before I got into fake emulsification. <laughs> <laughs> I liked farming and my two older brothers had left the farm and poor dad was all alone and I felt sort of obligated and you know, should I stay on the farm or should I? I often think you'd be a lot more satisfied if you're helping people one-on-one -on -one than feeding them with a big truckload of grain. So I decided to go on to, to college. But in, in high school, I had a physics and math teacher that was an excellent teacher. And he, he had a quiz every day in class he could ask five questions from any time from the beginning of the course. And those were year-long courses back then. Wow. And, you know, review, review, review. Anyway, I, I came to like physics. And I was always curious out in the farm. We had the mirage where the mountains looked higher than they really were. And what causes that? And, and the telephone lines going by, they'd stretch in the wintertime and sag in the summertime, what causes that? And we'd have ice in the yard where the trucks were or the traffic was, and, and without any thawing weather, the, the ice would disappear. Well, how does that happen, you know, until I learned about sublimation. Anyway, when I got to college, I decided I wanted pre-med. I had a 
an uncle who grew up in the farm in the same area that I was, and he married a nurse, and the nurse said, why don't you take medicine? So he left the farm with two kids with a grade nine education, went back to school, and became a family doctor. And so he was the motivation in our family. And my older brother took medicine. So he was starting uh, medical school when I was starting college. Well, he was maybe a second year by then. That what attracted me to medicine. I just, and I didn't know anything about medicine growing up in the farm. Family doctors was about the only thing I knew anything about. I had to choose a major for pre-med. Well, most of my buddies were taking biology or chemistry, but I didn't like those as well as I liked physics. So I said, no, I'm going to take physics. I might take some more, might have to take some more courses, but that's what I did. My grades weren't as good as theirs. More courses and probably physics isn't as easy to get the higher grades in. I was taking a lot of courses with engineering, one of which was optics. I fortunately got into medicine the first first try, and our school at that time, the first two years were just basic science, and then the last two years were clinical. So it wasn't until the fourth year that I started rotating through the clinics, the different subspecialties, and I like obstetrics, I like pediatrics, and I like this and that, but when I got into the clinic, the eye clinic, and they had me look through this hog straight, an old hog straight slit lamp, and saw the iris flexing, and I could see the, some blood vessels on the blue iris, and see the muscles working, I just said, this is for me. This is more like physics. <laughs> now, you said an old slit lamp. So I'm curious, would that have been in the 60s, right? I graduated medicine in 60, and uh, this would have been 60, let's see, that would have been 59. 59. What year was that slit lamp from to be an old slit lamp in 1959? <laughs> well, it, it had a swinging arm for the slit, not just a little bit of a thing, and it was a whole arm, but it had good optics. Yeah. It's amazing, you know, the optics in a in a slit lamp haven't really changed that much over the years. Mm-hmm. Well, and Hogstrike did a good job right from the start. That's right. So you're right, uh, Loma Linda, you were looking through this old slit lamp, you saw the iris and the blood vessels and the iris kind of flexing, and at that point you decided, this is pretty cool. Yeah, and we went into surgery and watched the surgery, and I thought, that's pretty delicate surgery, I like that. And that was intercapsular surgery, too. <laughs> I was accepted to the to the program at the same institution, the White Memorial Medical Center in Los Angeles. That's where Loma Linda had its clinical years. Then we had the, the third year at the L.A. County Hospital and then the fourth year at the White Memorial Medical Center. So I interned there and, and took ophthalmology there. You know, I was fortunate when I was taking ophthalmology that one of our attending was a uh, that taught us retinal detachment surgery was a german fellow from the old country and he had trained under skeppens the skeppens scope it was called and he had learned scleral buckle 
And that was a very new technology because it was proposed by Charles Skeppens. So I had the benefit of, of getting the latest technology in retinal detachment surgery. Not only that, but the resident ahead of me had intentional tremor. He said, you know, that's too delicate for me. I'm never going to do that surgery, so I'm not even going to try to do it with the hands that I have now. So, so I got to do all of the surgery when I was a junior resident, uh, as well as when I was a senior resident. So I came back to Calgary, and nobody here was doing scleral buckles, so I ended up doing my own scleral buckles and I felt, oh, but I'm not fellowship trained. You know, I shouldn't, shouldn't be doing this. And I went down, I applied for different places and Bascom Palmer gave me an interview. I went down there and, and uh, oh, I forget his name now, very common name, but he says, what are you going to do when you finish? Well, I'll go back to my practice. You mean you'd leave your practice and bring your family of five kids down here and spend a year or two, whatever it was? Well, yeah, I think if I'd have said I'm going to Loma Linda or some medical school, I probably would have got the... But I got turned down, and I'm thankful for that because it wasn't a year or two later that fake emulsification came on the line. And... Dick Kratz, I don't know if some of you younger fellows know of Skinsky and Kratz. Mm -hmm. Do you know those names? Yes, <laughs> I do. I don't. I don't know if all the other young people listening do. You know, we we have some instruments that bear uh, Dr. Sinsky's name, but do you want to tell us a little bit about them? Well, they were they were early adapters to FACO. They had taken Kelman's course and. Their practices exploded, just like mine and, and other pioneers, you know, that patients just wanted that result. Mm -hmm. And so with their experience, they got Dr. Kelman to agree that they could offer a course. And if you took his course, you were eligible to audit theirs. If you took their course, you're eligible to audit his so they had a course in, in Southern California. I signed up for Kelman. Well, anyway, I, this Dick Kratz had, had come and lectured to us occasionally, so I knew him from residency. And I went to the Academy every year, and he'd talk about the, the next thousand cases he had done since last year, <laughs> which was just uh, so amazing to hear. I I, came, I I remember distinctly coming down a stairway and a lot of people were following him and I got next to him I said, and he recognized me and I said, what about this fake emulsification? You know, should I get into it? And he said, it's going to separate the men from the boys. <laughs> and and just a little more background, I think that it was actually Dr. Kratz and Sinsky who who helped convince the FDA to overturn their ban of IOLs back in 1980 because they actually had a ban on IOLs. You know what turned the tide? Dr. Kratz had a, a movie star, the actor that played, is it Welby, played Father Knows Best? Oh, what was his name? Uh, Robert Young. Robert Young. Robert. That's right. 
he took him with us with him to testify to the FDA and when the FDA heard his testimony that flipped their opinion and wow. they were approved well before we leave them i want to show you a picture i have i keep it on the wall right in front of me <laughs> i was fortunate when i was offering courses to have them come up to my course as speakers like Kelman, Kratz, and Sinski. Wow. Down the, that was Jan Worst from Groningen, Holland. Oh, the Worst lens, the Irish call lens, right? Back then, these uh, ophthalmologists, those high volumes, they were called cataract cowboys. <laughs> but when they came to Calgary, it's sort of Calgary's tradition to honor people by giving them a, a hat because we have the stampede here every year. And so I, I gave them all the Stetson and took this picture of cataract <laughs> cowboys. Great. Now there there were four people in there. So you said it was it was Sinsky, Kratz, Kelman, and who who was the who's the fourth one in the in the picture? Yeah, that's, that's you. Me. Yeah, I thought that was you. Okay, you're tall. Well, or were they short? Kratz was a little shorter. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's a great. What that's, a great picture. Kelman, Kelman was short. Wow, what a great picture. I do want to circle back. So you mentioned Charles Skeppens earlier, and and you studied under him. You you don't only studied under him. You did buckles for him, right? It was Otto Jungschafer, who had taken a fellowship with Skeppens. Was, oh, okay. okay. And then came to L.A. and introduced uh, sclerobuckles to the L.A. community. Gotcha, gotcha. And just for those listening, because, because when, you, when you mentioned Skeppens, obviously he's, he's kind of like the father of modern retinal surgery. Yeah, that's right. You know, I, we haven't branched quite yet into retina, but but I do plan on having some of the some folks from the retina world on here as well. He invented the the indirect ophthalmoscope, and back in the early days, we used to call it the Skeppenscope. Oh, that's what you're talking about with that. Oh, right, right, okay, that makes sense. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. So we talked about cataract cowboys, and and we had you know at the practice I'm at now is Berkeley Eye Center in Houston, Texas, and so Ralph Berkeley was one of our founders, and and he always said that they called him a cataract cowboy, and yeah, he was an early adapter too. Yep. So it's uh it's cool to hear the cataract cowboy story and kind of the the quote unquote bad boys of the day who had the foresight to continue to support something that you knew was best for patients, both IOLs and fecal emulsifications. So kudos to you and all your compatriots for for staying the course and really bringing about the modern era of cataract surgery. I mean, you guys have indirectly impacted and directly impacted so many millions of people. It's unbelievable. It was sad, but uh, as they say, when you're in the lead, you always get arrows in the back of your pants. And that's why I said earlier that that when we pioneers got together, we found we had similar stories. We were all, you know, faced difficulties at home because the people that, that didn't have the confidence to get into FACO and implants when they came along, you know, they looked on critically and then jealously, you know, because our practice has just exploded. Just imagine people coming home without having to wear contacts or these thick glasses compared to their friends and right and then the small incisions such rapid recovery when i first started faco i remember it it just overwhelmed me i did faco emulsification on a young man with cataract and well this brings up another story because the hospitals just didn't have room 
and or budget to do as many cataracts as as I needed that were on my list. So we started doing uh, day surgery. First, we kept them in a shorter time in the hospital. Well, that didn't work, and then did day surgery. And finally, they said, we only have a budget for 12 a week. But anyway, I did that uh, fellow, and I saw him the next day in the clinic, and he said his wife went into labor, and he had to drive her to the hospital the evening of his surgery. I mean, that was so foreign at that time because it hadn't been long we were keeping patients in the hospital a week. It was such a paradigm shift, it just shocked me. Wow. So you started doing fake emulsification. Well, what I, year were yeah, you doing? I took Kalman's course. I took Kalman's course in January 1974. And I was going to tell you this story. Our daughter, Karen, who you met here, was studying German in Austria that year. And we decided... Judy and I decided we'd never been to Europe. This would be a good time, and we can meet Karen's professors and friends and see where she went to school. So we decided to go to Austria in June. The fall before at the academy, I always toured around all the exhibit areas, and one exhibitor had given Jan Worst just a corner of his space, because <laughs> Jan Worst didn't have his own, to show his intraocular lens. He was such an innovator and of different designs. We had had Dr. Choice from England come to speak at the Los Angeles Research Study Club once about his anterior chamber lens. But, but Jan Worst was talking about iris-supported lenses. And so I asked him, do you have a card? Oh, we've run out of cards. So he just took a stamp and stamped his name and, <laughs> and uh, phone numbers and so forth. And I kept that. And when I was planning going to Europe, I said to myself, you know, I could swing by Holland and, and learn a little more about implants. So I had a phone number there and I, I phoned up this number and his wife, Annika, answered. And she she said, sure, you can come anytime, she said. But actually, we have a the first international course on intraocular implants scheduled for whatever it was in June. But she says, oh, but I'm, I'm sorry, but I guess it's all filled up. So I moan a little bit, I guess. <laughs> and she said, where are you from? And I said, Calgary, Alberta. Calgary? Oh, I got a brother living there. I'll let you, I'll work you in. You can come. So that's how I got in on that first intraocular lens course. Wow. First international intraocular lens course. What year was that? That was 19 that was June of 74, just 6 months after I started FACO. Wow. And uh, Cornelius Beekhorst taught the first 2 days at his center in Southern Holland. Then we took a bus on Wednesday up to Northern Holland, to Groningen, where Jan Worst practiced and took the last two. Well, Binkhorst, he had some iris-supported lens implant designs, but he also had, it was a two-loop lens. The optic was in front of the iris, and the lower haptic, at least, was to go in the capsular bag and you left a big shelf of anterior capsule. And then you constrict the pupil 
until the cortex swells and and gels a little bit to sort of trap the lower haptic to get capsule fixation. And sometimes big eyed, big pupil, oh, you had to use polycarpine or the patient didn't use their drops or something and, and you'd lose fixation. So then you'd have to do something to secure that lens. So we would do a peripheral, well, we had done a peripheral aerodectomy for the surgery. We didn't get away from that right away in FACO. And then we'd stitch through the iris and through the upper loop to suspend the, the lens with this stitch through the iris. And with a big iridotomy, iridectomy once, I said, you know, I could even stitch that to the capsule instead of the iris, which did me well later on when I started to do capsule fixation of intraocular lenses um, that were subluxated and so forth. But we can get to that later. But anyway, so, big course convinced us that the ideal is if you can get capsule fixation. Well, you know, it was difficult to obtain until Masako came along with a silicone lens that they could get entirely within the capsule. A couple other firsts that you had, you know, in 1980, I think you were, the, you were one of the first to do cataract surgery, I think, out of a hospital setting. The first in Canada with a, a surgical facility outside the hospital, yeah. And the reason for that, I alluded to that earlier, that the hospital just refused to accommodate the, the load that I had. Right. And it was just for the patients, and I thought, ooh, do you think the patients would pay $50? And, and you know, I could... I could absorb some of it just to get their cataract surgery done. So there was a, in the office space where I rented, I moved to, there was a dental and oral surgeon facility there. And so they let me use their facility, you know, half a day a week. I bought my own microscope. I bought my own, that was, that was ex the time when people had had trouble with FACO or were afraid to get in it, were pushing planned extra cap. And even Dick Lindstrom, who took FACO and was proficient in FACO, he starts pushing planned extra cap. So, well, I thought, maybe I'll just give that a try, and it's a cheaper instrument. So, so that I, I bought just a, an INA uh, unit and did that for a while, and I said, no, this, this isn't what I want. So I shoved it in the corner and bought a FACO unit. Oh, there's another story that might be interesting, considering the FACO unit. When, when I took Kelman's course, I decided I, I just want to get in there. I had full confidence. My cat surgery went well. He said he couldn't have done better. And uh, so I came back to Calgary, and I told the, our, our ophthalmology chief I bought this FACO unit, and was going to start doing FACO, and he says, you can't bring your instrument in here. Well, I said, we bring our bag of instruments all the time, and back then we didn't have a full set of instruments. We'd have to have our own and take them in. Oh, but this is different, you know. We can't take the liability. So he talked to the administrator, and he agreed, and what are they going to do? He had made an announcement to all of us that, we were a pretty new department in that new hospital. And he said, we've used our entire budget. Don't go to the academy and feel like you're going to come home and get anything. 
that's why I decided I'd pay for it myself because the hospital wasn't going to. So to figure out what they had to do, they they brought in. They said, "Okay, you do you do some live cat surgery in the vivarium with your unit, and let us watch." And so the chairman of the department, chairman of the department of surgery, was there. The chairman of the board, well, the hospital administrator, the chairman of the board, and they had to go to the provincial government to get an extra money. So they had the health minister, all watching me do cat surgery. I've never been nervous doing eye surgery, but I was nervous doing that cat surgery, <laughs> with all these fellows watching. But fortunately, it went well, and and they decided to to buy the instrument. Uh, they didn't pay for the freight that I had paid for and all that. But, <laughs> but they bought the capital. That's good. But they, At least they, but they bought it, and that's how we got started with FACO in the, in the hospital. When FACO first came out, I mean, it was 1974 is when you said uh, Kelman started teaching his course. I think he had taught it a, a, a few that's years, you took three it. years before. Right, right. So that's that's when you took it. So between then and when you obviously famously helped invent the curvilinear, the continuous curvilinear capsular rexus, what, what was the method of capsulotomy? Was it just can opener? No, Kelman taught us what he called a Christmas tree. He would go in with a irrigating cystitope. We didn't have viscoelastics at that time. And go across the chamber and puncture the capsule and pull. And it would tear a V-shaped tear. And then he'd pull that out of the incision and use a Vanna scissor to, or a delicate scissor to cut it off. So there were three corners that could extend to, around the capsule. Fortunately, the puncture often is a little more blunt than the end of those tears, and you're pushing ahead. But, you know, too many nuclei were dropped because the capsule split around the equator. And uh, so that's when people started doing smaller cuts and finally doing cuts all the way around. But it's un- sub-incisionally, it's kind of hard to, to get a little cut like you can pulling it down. So do you know the name Jim Gills in Florida? Yes. Well, he was he was one of my my mentors. He was doing a lot of surgery and I visited him there. He had a little window that the family could look in and in the operating room. I'll tell you more about my own operating room from that, but I noticed that he and presenting at meetings, he would tear part of the capsule instead of all the little licks and then cut across so it was a mixture of tears and cuts. And I thought, you know, if if you can tear the capsule, I started tearing. I don't know if you've seen my video, but the first CCC that I did, I called it continuous tear, capsulotomy. I did uh, an arc, then left a little space, and then another arc, and then left a little space, and then... Because we didn't have viscoelastics, and those arcs would keep things stable until at the last I could I could complete all of those from outside to in, and then I would have a a continuous curvilinear tear. So Noyhan had come up with a continuous tear as well, but what he did is he he went in and punctured the lens capsule subincisionally and lifted the 
cystitome or whatever he punctured with that sort of tear, tore it out a little bit. And then they'd take each one of those around and complete so that it would be jagged in. But, but where he punctured, you know, was a little vulnerable as well. So, so we, he had published before I did, so in German. So we got together, and he was over at my meeting, and, and I remember distinctly we were visiting in the, outside the operating room, and I said, why do we publish jointly and come up with our own name? He had called his capsule rexus, capsule tear. And uh, I said, wait, well, we can call it continuous circular capsule rexus. Well, I said, you know, this isn't a perfect circle and it doesn't have to be. It could be an oval and still be functional. So I came up with the term continuous curvilinear capsule rexus, and that's what we, we first published, see continuous uh, circular, and then we wrote a letter to the editor and said, let's, we're going to change it to continuous curvilinear capsule rexus, and that's how it got its name. Wow. That's really cool. We as modern day ophthalmologists also thank you for that because it means we don't have to make a perfect circle every time. <laughs> you gave us some wiggle room by, by using curvilinear, so thank you for that. Well, and uh, curvilinear started to be used uh, purposely sometimes too. You know, they'd make two openings. Some people got into that to, to try to keep the very mature lenses from spilling out and tearing. Anyway, yeah, I think it's a more appropriate term. So you started using CCC or variations of CCC in the in the early 80s. And then I believe you and Nuhan published in, what was it, around, around 91 or so? I didn't look that up to remember exactly. Somewhere around there, something like that. So it was late, late 80s, I think. But how, how long did it take for it to reach just mainstream? I mean, I know you had a meeting, but, but how long did it take for other ophthalmologists to adopt the CCC? Well, that's interesting you ask that because before we published, I had presented a videotape at ASCRS of this technique, continuous tear capsulotomy, and uh, won the grand prize with that film. So I thought the whole world had learned about CTC. I'd come back to meeting a year later, and here were people still doing can opener and and so forth, and I couldn't figure that out. So it took a while. Everybody wasn't early adapter or, you know, just at a meeting doesn't publish. I was so naive early in my practice, I didn't realize you had to publish to really spread the word widely and and be established as as an innovator, you know, because that didn't mean anything to me. I was just wanting to spread the word, you know, this is a safer way to do things and so forth. Right, right. Wow. Thinking about the capsular rexus and, and the creation of a capsular rexus, of any of the more recent advances in capsular rexus creation from Fimpto to, uh, you know, Zepto capsulotomy using the, the precision pulse, do any of those excite you? Are you excited? I mean, did any of those sound, or did you think any of those would be kind of the next step forward in capsular rexus, or do you still think that there's not really an advantage compared to a manual capsular rexus? Well, I probably didn't have the best opinion because, you know, my opinion was based on such a, 
a volume of experience that I felt so confident. But what those technologies do offer, you know, every once in a while we run into a fibrotic capsule or a band of fibrosis. I've had to cut through bands because I couldn't tear through them. And so <clears throat> there are situations where those are are better than terror, like I said, with viscoelastics. And when you have a hyper-mature lens, if you use a, a very viscous Helon 5 uh, viscoelastic, you can, you can really flat, flatten that anterior capsule so you don't get any runaway tears. Right. And start small and enlarge it once the pressure's off, things like that. Yep. That's uh that's awesome. Now moving moving on, I mean, again, you had you had so many innovations. I I it's it's so amazing. Talk about optic lens capture, because you you were one of the first to to really kind of push optic lens capture as a as a as a way to or as as an option if you lost some posterior capsular, lost capsular support, things like that. As far as I know, I think I was the first to do optic capture. And that was in pediatric eyes and pediatric cataract surgery with implants, again, is a whole story because, oh, I was criticized for that so badly. I mean, there were pediatric ophthalmologists in the province that uh, said to patients, if you darken his door, you won't, I won't see you again. They may have done it, uh, you know, honestly, thinking it was just too risky in children. We had good success. I did a uh, juvenile arthritis with a secondary cataract mm -hmm. from steroid, I guess, and so forth. And, you know, people wondered how in the world is that going to be successful and, and not stir up more inflammation in the eye. But with the optic capture, that patient did perfectly. And she was seen, I think his name was Dr. Foster in the East. Uh, uvi a specialist that they'd go to see. Her mother took such excellent care of her. But using optic capture, it, it just kept the anterior and posterior se segments, you know, completely separate because good zonules in a child. And she's now a nurse in Calgary. I have her picture somewhere <laughs> in my office here, but I can't put my hand on it right now. But I, I keep looking at it just for inspiration. That's all. That's so cool. I did a lot of pediatric implants. I did, you know, most of them in the city, and until a pediatric ophthalmologist came along who had had worked for a few years in Saudi Arabia, and before he went to Saudi Arabia, it was critical. But when he came back, he was gung ho for implants, and so I just I was so busy in adult cataract surgery, I just let him take over. Wow. Now, when you tried some of these things for the first time, because, you know, I, I, I love innovation and it's always a discussion on when you try something for the first time in a patient, what's going through your mind and, and what do you say to the patient? So what would you say to some of these first patients when you may try optic capture, or been the first one to try optic capture or have done a, a CCC or a CTC for the first time? Did, would you tell them anything different or just, hey, we're going to do your cataract surgery and I'm going to do my best and, and just leave it at that? Well, as I often tell people, necessity is the mother of invention. Most of the innovations came in trying to solve a problem or to prevent a problem. And so 
I, I presented a paper at a meeting once that I wanted to talk about how how you shouldn't just, if you get a complication, try to get out of there as soon as you can with minimal damage, you know, without trying to fix it at the time. And I asked my medical assistant who was helping me, what should we title this? And he said, mind over mutter. <laughs> Instead of just rushing to close it up, vitreous in the wound or whatever, you know, you sit there and think, now what is the best thing to do? What could I do to get a good result? And that's, that's where you get innovative ideas because you're trying to make things better. It's not not to be receiving some award or something for coming up with something new. You've you've had a situation where where the, the situation demanded some uh, stop and think. You know what what should I do? What could I do? And the same thing with preventing. Just like when you get a posterior cap. I mean a tear zipping around to the posterior capsule. You say, what should I do to make this anterior capsule more resistant to tearing and so forth? Wow. It's interesting to think back on my education. I mean, many of the steps I learned are things that you help pioneer. So, you know, before we could get into to chopping techniques and things like that, we learned, obviously, a, a good CCC in order to, to set the stage for the rest of the case and then divide and conquer. And I believe you were one of the original. Yeah, uh, I, coined, I coined the term. <clears throat> it's come to be used for cross action, turn it and have an expert. I, I never did that. That was John Shepard's technique, but somehow it got the, the term divide and conquer. But the reason I got into that divide and conquer was I got more and more confident in FACO and started doing more dense lenses mm -hmm. and the softer lenses you know you get the, the nucleus out and then the epinucleus and the rest comes easy but when you got a dense lens right out to the cortex I sculpted away got a big bowl clean but now what what do you do I can't get that out the capsulorexis is too small you can't tip it out and that's when the conviction came, I'm going to have to split it to get it out. So I didn't have a chopper then. I just used uh, my, my ordinarily, ordinary FACO second instrument, which has some angle to the end of it, but uh, I didn't hook it. I just sort of pulled it apart. The chop technique was... Was it Nagahara? Somebody else came up with that. Mm -hmm. Take a chop, which makes a lot of sense, too. But that's how Divide and Conquer came about. And then I wrote a paper and presented what I called Polar Expedition. I said, sculpt down on these dense lenses and push the nucleus away from you so you can sculpt down the slope underneath your phaco tip until you can get down to the posterior pole of the lens and then you can often just split it because it's thinned out so deep right 
So that was another technique. To kind of sculpt out that deep has to be a bit anxiety provoking to do that for the first time, I have to imagine. Well, the, you can see the color change as you get to mm-hmm. less dense. So you, you go so shave, so you're just shaving it. And we know that now, but at the time, <laughs> I mean, we take that for granted. Like, yeah, go down until you see a little color change, then go ahead and crack it. But at the time when you were doing some of these things for the first time, I mean, you didn't have anyone there whispering in your ear saying, hey, just go down until the color changes. <laughs> well, that's true. You know, switching gears a little bit. I mean, we've talked about cataract surgery, and obviously your your incredible contributions to cataract surgery from the continuous curvilinear capsular rexus to optic capture, divide and conquer, and then all the other stuff with FACO. You also were very involved in RK and refractive surgery and even PRK. Do you want to talk a little bit about your refractive surgery adventures? I would, but I'd like to talk some more about optic capture. Oh, let's do it. Let's do that first. Sounds good. You know, Bobby Osher said once to the people in his course after my presentation on capture, he said, you know, I think that Dr. Gimbel's contribution to our, our specialty on, on all the methods of optic capture, he put that above CCC. Well, you can't do it without CCC, but <laughs> I wrote a paper once, or a presentation, I forget, fixation on capsule fixation, because if you can't get in the bag fixation, you can use four different ways to use optic capture. You can have the lens and the sulcus push it through the CCC or push it through the CCC and the posterior capsule, uh, capsular axis. And Brian DeBroff published that. He started using that routinely in pediatric ophthalmology, uh, cataract surgery. And then you can have the haptics in the bag, and you can either pull the optic up through the CCC or push it down through the PCCC. And then two more, if you have a secondary cataract, you can have a lens in the sulcus and push the optics through the fibrotic opening, or, or you might have a subluxated lens, and you can bring it up through that fibrotic circular opening. And I've had secondary cases where, where I've even used the vitrector to enlarge to make the opening in that fibrotic capsule big enough to capture the optic. Yep. You know, do a vitrectomy at the time as well, but mm-hmm. just to get capsule fixation. And then I came up with other ways to use capsule fixation because I had a case when I was uh, teaching down at Loma Linda I did two weeks a month there for 14 years, chaired the department half-time with a lot of help from Dr. Michael Rouser. But anyway, this lady came with this uh, subluxated lens, and she had this capsule opening that was just, it wasn't circular, it wasn't enough to really trap the optics, but I could get one side of the optic under fibrotic capsule, and that held it. And she did fine for a few years, but she came back having bumped her head or fell or something, but the jar caused the vitreous to push the optic out of capture. And so I I took her back and did vitrectomy to get rid of some of that anterior vitreous. Mm-hmm. And then I, I took a tenoproline suture and with a seepser technique, went through that fibrotic capsule edge and 
around the haptic and sutured the haptic to the fibrotic capsule that remained. And I've used that technique uh, a number of times since in my practice, but that absolutely stabilized the lens. And I have some neat videos on my YouTube channel that, that show that. I hope your your listeners will are aware of my YouTube channel. I know a lot of it is maybe outdated, but there's some there's some basic stuff there that you know you don't run into some of the complications that I did in those early days. You know, so many lenses didn't. A surgeon would get one loop in the bag and one out, and they'd go eccentric, or they'd lose fixation altogether and swim around. And so there was a lot of things I had to to fix that you don't even see now, typically. I'll put a link in the in the notes or the description of the show to your YouTube channel. Be happy to do that. That way, for all you listeners out there, if you want to check out Dr. Gimbel's YouTube uh, videos and see what kind of pioneering things he did and, and complications he managed, you can click on those and take a look. Some complications hopefully you'll never see, but... Exactly. Exactly. You, you just might. <laughs> Any other stories you want to tell before we move into uh, refractive surgery? No, I think that covers it. Uh, you know, I didn't have any anything that I developed or pioneered or anything, except our center, I deferred. I said, I've had a lot of firsts, so I said to my colleague, Dr. Van Westenberg, you do the first PRK in Canada, so you can have a first too. So <laughs> we did the first PRK in Canada in June of 1990. Hunkler kindly invited me to to go to the summit uh, to get into the summit lasers back then. Mm-hmm. So we had a NIDEC laser, which I liked because of the uh, the way the patient could look right at the target if you're going to use it for, for centering corneal inlays and things like that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah, I did refractor surgery, but that, you know, I just went along with the crowd. I didn't innovate anything. So, Dr. Gimbel, another cool technique that you've also pioneered is something I've also, I mean, I, I think I've used almost every one of your, the techniques you've, you've uh, created. One of them, more recently, was, was actually published in 2019, I believe. I think it was on one of the covers of, of JCRS. Uh, it was a cover image, like sometime in 2019. That's posterior haptic tuck. I had this patient with a toric lens that I wanted to use, which is a one-piece I got this capsule tear. So what am I going to do? Am I going to, you know, put in a, a three-piece that's non-toric and and try to deal with the, the astigmatism some other way? And again, you know, just sitting there contemplating, it came to me to put the toric lens in the anterior chamber and then put the optics one at a time through the capsulorexis opening. The haptics through the capsulorexis I mean, opening. Yep. One at a time. Yeah. That's awesome. And, it, and it's actually it's it's quite stable. But but the key is is making sure you have a good rexus to start with. And for <laughs> for anyone listening who's new in ophthalmology or getting into it or isn't a surgeon, you know, the capsulorexis, I mean every stage of the surgery tees up your next stage. And so I think it's so cool that all the things that you've invented or come up with have really built on each other, just like in cataract surgery, right? I mean, we can't do FACO until we have a good capsular rector. We should, you know, it's more challenging to do FACO before we have a good capsular rexus. We can't do a cortical cleanup if we haven't done a good 
phacoemulsification emulsification of the nucleus. We can't put the lens in and potentially optic capture if we didn't have a good capsulorexis. And, and all those things are hard to close at the end, you know, if you didn't make good incisions to begin with. So, and when you look at what you've done from the, from the curvilinear capsulorexis to all your work with phaco, optic capture, and haptic tuck, I mean, it's incredible. They've all built on each other, almost like the steps of cataract surgery. It's, it's yeah. truly fascinating. Well, to God be the glory. I don't, uh, like I said, I, I didn't do any of that because I, I wanted to become famous. I just did it because it just seemed like the best thing to do at the time. And like you say, it forced us to use optic or phaco chop or, you know, the, the techniques we developed now. Kalman taught us to tip the lens out of the bag and then just chew at it from the edges. That's what we were taught. So if you're to think of all of the different innovative techniques that you've come up with, and I'm going to make it a challenge. If you had to pick one, what do you feel is your, is your greatest contribution to ophthalmology? Well, I think it is the CCC because, like you said, the others couldn't have, been, couldn't have happened without the CCC. It all builds off the CCC. Like CCC demanded fracturing the lens. And not only demanded, but it facilitated. Kalman said to me once, oh, I wish I'd have come up with CCC because he said, I, I tried divide and conquer. I split lenses, but with my capsule opening technique, it just split the capsule too. Mm -hmm. That's why the, the CCC is so essential for all of the other developments. I think it's a great point. They, they definitely all build on that. Well, Dr. Gimbel... Thank you so much for, for spending the time with us today. I've learned so much, so much history, so many incredible things that you've done. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Well, you're very welcome. And I congratulate you for this idea and, and for the, the skills you've developed, obviously. I want to take a quick moment to thank our sponsors for helping support this editorially independent content, in particular, Alcon, who is a founding level sponsor of the season one of the history of eye care. And that concludes another episode of The History of Eye Care with your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to the podcast on your preferred platform. Don't forget to follow us on social media to stay up to date with our latest episode information and to join in on the conversation.